Hey listeners, welcome back to Shades of Crime. Sometimes you come across a case that it looks so obvious who the killer is, and then you find out that the case still remains unsolved, and it kind of blows your mind. And that's what my initial thoughts were for the murder of Brenda Way. But just remember, nothing is ever as it seems. So get ready, because things are about to get shady. Today's case will take us back to the east coast of Canada in the province of Nova Scotia between the 1980s and the early 2000s. Before I get into the case, I'm going to give you a bit of information on the setup of the area, just so you can get a feel for what's going on. Brenda's case takes place in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. The main city of Nova Scotia is Halifax, and right across Halifax Harbour is Dartmouth, the slightly smaller but still pretty popular sister city. Halifax is a relatively expensive place to live for a province where poverty rates are high and wages are low. So Dartmouth tends to attract a lot of people who can't afford the luxury of life in Halifax but still want access to the jobs and the city life. Brenda Way was born in Dartmouth in 1967 in a little area called Jellybean Square. And basically it's named Jellybean Square because all of the duplex houses are colored every color of the rainbow. And it's actually quite stunning to look at. Now this place sounds really innocent, sounds kind of cute, but it's really well known for high crime rates and being a little dangerous. Within this vibrant location, there sat an apartment building where Brenda Way was raised. Early on in her life, Brenda earned the nickname Pitbull. This nickname stuck with her for life. Unfortunately, as is the case with many people living on the margins of society, there's very little that you can gather about Brenda's early life. Like, we can't even find out if she went to school or at what grade she stopped going to school or if she graduated. There's no personal anecdotes other than one friend who told a story about Brenda trying to burp a hundred times for a dollar, and that's about as close to a personal anecdote as we get about her. What we do know, according to Brenda's sister, is that Brenda started sex work between the ages of 14 and 15. It's unclear why she did it at first, but it is clear that later on in life, Brenda suffered from a severe crack addiction, which wasn't uncommon for this time. It was basically the crack epidemic. During the 60s and 70s, authorities largely ignored sex work in Nova Scotia due to its prevalence in the province. There wasn't a lot of ways to make money other than coal mining, fishing, and in general, it was a pretty poor town. So authorities kind of had to turn a blind eye. But eventually, in the 70s, police started cracking down on this. And in the 70s, all sex work was restricted to two streets one in Halifax, and the second and most popular was called the Dartmouth Stroll. This was located near the bridge connecting Dartmouth to Halifax, and it was located on two main roads named Windmill and Victoria Road. 
During a 1988 survey, it was found that 46 female sex workers were currently working along the Dartmouth Stroll, and it was on that stroll where Brenda made her debut. Brenda Way was a short woman. She only grew to be 4 foot 10 and she only weighed about 95 pounds, but she was supposedly very good at her job. And everyone knew of Brenda, but no one really knew Brenda. But the people who did know her said that she was full of love, she was cheerful, and was always super compassionate. There was one account where Brenda's old friend from a long time ago, who really hadn't talked to Brenda in a long time, was walking by and Brenda saw her from across the street and basically screamed her name and ran over to her and just gave her a big hug. And apparently that's just what she did. She was just super loving and she always wanted to make people happy. Unfortunately, other than statements like that, we don't have much personal knowledge about who Brenda was. We know generalized ideas that she was friendly and that everyone knew her and that she was well-liked. But in an interview, when one of her friends was asked if she had any personal anecdotes, her simple reply was that we were all on crack, basically saying that none of them really had any memories of what was going on. In 1987, Brenda was taken on by a pimp named Bob Renner, and she lived with him for upwards of six years. During this time, Brenda gave birth to a baby boy in 1989, and the father of that boy was Renner. But immediately after his birth, Renner took the child and gave him to his parents. He told Brenda that she would make a terrible mom, and that she liked to party and smoke crack too much to ever take care of a child, and Brenda was never able to see her child again. And life seemed to carry on normally until Renner was arrested for drug dealing and pimping in 1993, and this meant that Brenda was truly alone. And in 1993, everything started to change for Brenda. In 1993, Brenda found herself pregnant once again. During her pregnancy, she found out that social services intended on taking her child, and she definitely didn't want this to happen. So she went to her friend named Corbin and asked him if he would take on her child and declare himself the legal father, and Corbin did so, and he raised the child as his own with his family. Not long after this, Brenda was back on the streets, and she was apprehended by police. Brenda Way was arrested on charges of prostitution, and while she was at the courthouse for her sentencing, she came across a man who handed her his phone number. This man was Glenn Asun a five-foot-six, black-haired, bearded man who was reported to look like a wannabe biker. He wore all leather, and he kept a knife in his boot. He always had at least two knives on him at all times. After receiving his number, Brenda gave him a call a couple days later, and then she proceeded to serve her sentence for three months in jail. During the sentence, it appears that Brenda and Glenn had kept in contact, and following her release, her and Glenn moved out of town together to help Brenda kick her addiction. See, being in jail had forced Brenda to give up crack for at least three months, but Glenn wanted to make sure she had fully kicked the addiction, so he figured he had to get her out of Dartmouth to do so. At first, the two had just moved about 20 minutes out of town, but a couple of weeks later, they decided to move to Glenn's hometown of Sydney, Nova Scotia. This is about three or four hours away from Dartmouth, and they actually ended up really hating it there. They didn't like the pace, and Glenn was kind of estranged from his family, so they didn't have much for them up there, and they quickly ended up moving back. 
After this, they were back in Dartmouth. They weren't quite in the center of town. They were at a place called Shuby Park, which is a bit out of town, but still they were in Dartmouth. And just about six months after Brenda's release, Brenda had fallen back into prostitution and smoking crack. Also around this time, Brenda's sister Jane and Corbin, the man raising her child, began noticing bruises all over her, especially her face. And Brenda would always tell them that Glenn did it. According to Brenda's friend, Glenn hated when Brenda used coke, and he wasn't the biggest fan of her working in the sex industry either, although he apparently really liked the money that she got. So this ended up leading to a lot of violent altercations and physical abuse of Brenda. Glenn tried not to allow her to use coke in his presence, and this would lead to Brenda disappearing for days on end, and then returning to Glenn's trailer outside of town, where he would continue the cycle of abuse. This cycle continued outside of town until June of 1995, when the two moved to the Four Star Motel in town. This name is a bit misleading. It's a very rundown motel that was kind of out of the way of the main arteries and gave rooms for people who were on the edge of poverty who could do weekly or monthly rentals. And while they lived there, the cycle of disappearing and returning, followed by physical abuse, continued. Soon, Brenda wanted out. One day, she met a man named Donald Manning and quickly befriended him. She explained her situation to him, and he came up with a solution. He arranged for Brenda to move in with his friend, David O'Neill, who lived directly behind the four-star. The day Brenda moved in, she was bruised on her arms and face, and she told O'Neill that Glenn had done it. While living with O'Neill, Brenda was supposedly a great roommate, she brightened up the place, and O'Neill was a bachelor, so the two of them sort of had a friends with benefits thing going on, and he was really happy about it. One day while she was living there, Brenda encountered Glenn in the Four Star Motel's parking lot, and he reportedly threatened her with a .357 Magnum gun, which I'm not sure what exactly a .357 Magnum is, but being threatened with a gun is scary. Unfortunately, soon O'Neill's landlord realized that he had another roommate living with him, and O'Neill lived in a maximum one occupant apartment, so she began coming after him, and quickly he had to make Brenda move out. Both of them were unhappy, but Brenda said that she was going to go live with her father. Instead, Brenda ended up moving back with Glenn, and from there, the cycle continued where Brenda would disappear for days on end, Glenn would beat her, and she would constantly go back and forth between his place, her father's, and sometimes going back to O'Neill's. Now, when Brenda would disappear, Glenn would start staying with his friend Kathy Valade. One day, in the summer of 1995, a woman was passing by the balcony of the Four Star Motel, and Glenn yelled down and invited her up for a beer. So she came up, and they became friends, and she introduced herself as Robin. Shortly after this, Robin was introduced to Brenda, and they quickly became best friends. And Robin quickly caught on that Brenda was being abused by Glenn. So Robin moved into the Four Star at this time to try to keep an eye on Brenda. At this time, Robin did have a home of her own, but she really wanted to watch out for her best friend. But she did eventually end up returning to her home. And when she did so, Brenda would constantly go visit her to both avoid Glenn and to smoke crack with her. But the cycle of abuse and disappearance continued. During this time, Robin can recall two specific occasions where she had to clean blood off the walls of the four-star motel in Glenn and Brenda's room. One time, 
Brenda was just beaten severely and blood went everywhere. And another time, Glenn had actually broken her nose. Things were not going well. As things continued to escalate, Brenda found herself cycling between Glenn's place, Robin's place, and O'Neill's. Frequently, Glenn would take all of Brenda's clothes and throw them in front of O'Neill's place or her father's place. And then Brenda would just pick them up and stay wherever he had left her clothes at that time. And then, a few days later, she would come back and she would be welcomed in again. Nothing was changing, and life was just getting tougher on Brenda. At the end of the summer, Glenn's friend Kathy recalled a particularly violent event. Brenda was out somewhere, and Glenn was furious for unknown reasons. He went to Kathy's apartment and got her and his son, Glenn Jr., to get into a cab to seek her out. They wound up at the place of a friend of Brenda's named Mickey, where Glenn attempted to kick down the door. After failing, the three returned to the four-star. Not much later, Brenda showed up and was upset to see Kathy there, so she went to the bathroom. Glenn followed her to the bathroom and the two began arguing. They were both yelling and then suddenly Brenda came flying out of the bathroom door. Glenn had thrown her and she smashed against the refrigerator door. Glenn came out of the bathroom and began punching her in the face until she collapsed and then he proceeded to kick her while she was on the floor. Following this, apparently Brenda came for Kathy who proceeded to pin her. Glenn yelled that Brenda had to fight to earn his respect. Meanwhile, Brenda was begging Glenn to get Kathy off of her. Finally, Glenn called Kathy off and told her she was no longer welcome there. All of this abuse and trauma came to a head on October 8th of 1995, where Brenda was pushed to her limit. She called the police and reported Glenn's abuse, where he had beaten her, strangled her, and asked her if she wanted to know what death felt like. In her report, she said she was a little woman and that she couldn't handle it anymore. And she said that he wasn't aggressive until he started to drink. And it doesn't seem that much was done with this report. As is so often seen with abuse cases, Brenda returned to him because it's so hard to leave your abuser and clearly the police hadn't done enough to intervene. So she would go home and she lived with him for about two more weeks until one evening he took all of her clothes and threw them off the balcony. An employee from the Forest Stark helped her gather her things and they took them to O'Neill's place. For the next few days, she was back and forth between O'Neill's place and her father's nearby. During this time, Glenn left to live with a friend named Ann Morse. On Friday, November 10th, Brenda showed up at her dad's place to pick up some folding chairs, a vacuum, and some other odds and ends. Then she told her dad that she was going to help clean an unnamed friend's house. And then she left. 42 hours later, at 7.30 a.m., November 11th, Brenda's body was found in an apartment building parking lot not far from her father's house. Brenda had been stabbed multiple times, and she had her throat slit three times, and it was only the third slit that proved fatal. It had only gone five millimeters deep, but it had cut her jugular vein, and this proved fatal. When her body was found, she had been heavily beaten, and her arms were outstretched forwards as if she was pulling herself along the pavement. Her pants were around her ankles, and she only had one sock on. There was one shoe nearby, and the other was nowhere to be found. Despite the brutality of the attack, there was no evidence that Brenda had endured any sexual assault. 
but unfortunately, due to the nature of her injuries, it seems that Brenda would have been alive for about 15 minutes before bleeding out. So this means that whoever killed her was okay with a slow death and didn't even want to make sure that she died. That same morning, at 5am, a bus driver had found her jacket left in the middle of the road. Based on the scene, police were able to deduce that she was probably killed around 4.30am. Police quickly began to investigate the people around. They questioned local sex workers, and they also talked to Glenn. Unfortunately, nothing really seemed to come out of this, and quickly the investigation tapered off. At this time, drastic changes were being made to central Nova Scotia, where the cities of Dartmouth, Halifax, Bedford, and Sackville were being amalgamated into one municipality called the Halifax Regional Municipality. This meant that the police force and the government were all being combined under one faction. With these merged jurisdictions, it became abundantly clear that with hundreds of unsolved murder cases, the HRM has a problem. So a task force devoted to closing these crimes was formed, and amongst these cases was the murder of Brenda Way. Brenda's case had been put under the control of Detective Dave McDonald on April 1st of 1996. McDonald began taking a closer look at all the evidence that was collected at the very beginning, and honestly, it wasn't very much. But McDonald had one thing that made him certain he knew who killed Brenda Way. When looking at the background information for Brenda's case, McDonald saw the report Brenda had given about Glenn's abuse. And as McDonald looked further, he realized that this was far from Glenn's first abuse allegation. Glenn had been in three serious relationships prior to Brenda, and each one had the same thing to say, that Glenn was abusive and violent one of his exes reported that he had held a knife to her throat and asked her if she wanted to know what death felt like. Another said that he beat her regularly, and all of these women had made formal reports against Glenn. So when McDonald started questioning people in the streets, he wasn't surprised to find out that everyone had the same thing to say about Glenn, that he was violent and he was very abusive towards Brenda. But he did find out one thing that kind of made him question all that he knew about the case. Glenn had a corroborated alibi for the night that Brenda was murdered. As I had previously mentioned, Glenn was staying with his friend Anne, and the night that Brenda died, they were up until 2am drinking, and then they all had went to bed, and he didn't leave until late that afternoon, well after the murder. So it really seemed that investigators had reached another dead end. Ten months after Brenda was murdered, her sister Jane Downey was walking to her dad's and took a shortcut between the parking lot where Brenda was found and the parking lot behind it that was connected by a wooded path. On that path, Jane found a knife with the tip broken off. She grabbed it and turned it over to the police. Apparently this knife resembled one that was carried by Glenn, but unfortunately, due to it being outside for such a long duration, there was no evidence to be collected off of it. But this knife was enough to reignite the fire underneath of McDonald and get him investigating Glenn once again. Unfortunately, Glenn still had an alibi that checked out, so he really needed to find a way to work around that. About a year after Brenda's murder, a dead man was found in his car in a parking lot along the Dartmouth Stroll. The man was determined to have died from a heart attack, but as police were investigating it, they found a jacket of a sex worker from the area, and this sex worker was Robin. They found her and began to question her. They just wanted to know what happened and she basically confirmed their suspicions that the man had died from a heart attack during his time with Robin after he had hired her. 
But Robin had more to say. She started talking about Brenda's murder. At first, it seemed like she was just trying to get out of prostitution charges. She said that she was working the streets because she was trying to figure out who killed Brenda. But she was pretty well known to police, so they knew that this was kind of bullshit, but they also wanted to hear if she knew anything or if she found anything out while doing her work. However, when she was questioned farther, Robin pretty much relied on psychic premonitions, and she rambled on for about two hours speaking about how things had come to her in her dreams and how she had seen things in her mind. But as soon as the investigators were about to dismiss her, she came up with one thing that was actually tangible. Robin told investigators that the morning of Brenda's murder, she had encountered Glenn. Robin reported seeing Glenn at 4.15 while she was out looking for Brenda because she hadn't seen her in a little bit. When she ran into Glenn, it was near the parking lot where Brenda had been found murdered. And when Robin asked about Brenda, Glenn said that she was finally gone and that a weight was lifted off of his shoulders. And he said that she was stabbed to death. This statement piqued the attention of the two officers and they brought it quickly to McDonald. And this is exactly what he needed to go against Glenn's alibi. Due to Robin's tumultuous lifestyle, McDonald didn't think that she could be necessarily reliable to bring in as a witness in court. So he decided to collect something called a KGB statement, which is basically a recorded statement where you get information from a witness and they can't be cross-examined and it needs to be collected in such a way where the cross-examining can be negated. Since Robin was both a sex worker and on crack, this seemed necessary because it was a risky lifestyle, and if she were to encounter any issues, or if she were to disappear, then they could still give the statement against Glenn. Unfortunately, trying to locate Robin was definitely not easy, and the few times that the police did manage to get her for a statement, she was strung out and unable to give any intelligible information. But while the police were looking for Robin, two more pieces of information came forward. The first report was from Wayne Wise, Glenn's nephew. In 1997, Glenn was living in BC on the other side of Canada. Wise had called his uncle asking if there was any good work out there. After this, he asked Glenn why he had left, and Glenn said that he was part of a murder investigation and he needed out. And when Wise asked if he had done the murder, Glenn said yes. The second came in in April of 1997 from a woman named Tina Cameron, a fellow sex worker along the Dartmouth Stroll, and she also happened to be friends with Kathy Valade. While Tina was over at Kathy's place about two weeks after Brenda's murder, Glenn had come over and Tina overheard Glenn say that he did it. And Kathy said, Brenda? And he said yes. Tina decided to move to the kitchen. Tina then heard him say that he slit her ear to ear and that his knife tip broke. With all of this, McDonald had a decent case, as long as he could get his KGB from Robin, which he still really couldn't seem to get his hands on. On October 8th of 1997, a woman named Rachel McQuarrie was reported missing and suspected murdered. She was a 32-year-old sex worker along the Dartmouth Stroll, and the last known person to speak to her was Robin. Lead investigator on this case, Stephen Maxwell, brought Robin in and McDonald caught wind of this, so he contacted Maxwell and requested that he collect the KGB. Maxwell agreed to do so and collected both statements. However, unfortunately, it appears that the recorder wasn't turned on during this. Robin also wasn't in the greatest state of mind. 
She hadn't eaten in three days, and it appears that she was probably using frequently. So Maxwell took her home, he bought her food, and then asked her if she would do the interview the next morning, and she agreed. So that morning he picked her up and he collected the KGB, finalizing McDonald's case. So a warrant for Glenn's arrest went out on April 8th of 1998, and he was very quickly arrested in BC and he went willingly. While awaiting a trial, two more pieces of information came forward. While viewing the news on her TV in Ontario, a woman under the pseudonym of Roberta saw a short segment on Glenn's arrest, and upon seeing his face, she contacted the Halifax Regional Police with a terrifying account. Sometime after Brenda's death, Roberta was working the streets, and a man picked her up and offered her $30 for oral sex. She accepted, and he drove to the side of a highway about 20 minutes away. Roberta was uncomfortable with this location because it was very public and the police could have come by at any time. So she refused to carry out the act, and the man requested his money back. She said not until he took her home. He responded with punching her face and then forcing her to take off her clothes and perform oral sex on him. Following this, he pushed her head below the dashboard and drove off, and she had no clue where they were going. Eventually, they stopped somewhere, and he ordered her out of the car. They were in a factory of some sort, and while there, he proceeded to rape her. Meanwhile, he was beating her, and at one point, he said Pitbull. Roberta asked if he was the one who killed her, and he said, yes, and I'll fucking kill you too. After he finished, he returned her back to the Dartmouth Stroll and later he returned her jacket. In the jacket pocket, she found a note that said, I killed her, and I'll fucking kill you too, bitch. Obviously, Roberta was shaken from this, and she ended up moving to a new province to get away from this. In Roberta's statement, she said the man had black hair and a beard and a large key ring, one pierced ear, and wore lots of leather, so she was almost certain that it was Glenn. The final piece of evidence came from Jane's friend's boyfriend named Dave Carvery, and it came from prison. Supposedly, while Carvery was watching TV in prison with Glenn, a case came up about Christine McLean's murder, where her body was left near a water treatment plant, and Glenn turned to Dave and said the guy that did it was smart for dumping the body. When Dave asked why, apparently Glenn replied because that's what I did with my ex-girlfriend and then he went into details about how he murdered Brenda Way. During this time, only Carvery and Glenn were in the TV room, because it was recreational hours, so everyone else was outside. Despite the apparent mounds of evidence against Glenn, not much would stand up in court. The two people who claimed Glenn confessed to them, Wise and Carvery, were both in prison when they gave their statements, and were both seeking reduced prison time Tina had overheard Glenn's statement, so a defense lawyer would likely question if she had heard it correctly. Roberta's account could be contested due to her use of crack at the time of the event. This could have obscured her knowledge of who had committed the act. And despite her specific recounts of what the person looked like, what if there was another person who appeared to look like Glenn? So that left Robin, and the whole case rested upon her statement, even though she was using crack at the time. She was the only one who could go against his alibi and place him at the scene. By August 1998, enough evidence was presented for the prosecution to present the case. On August 18th, Glenn's preliminary hearing was scheduled to determine if there was enough evidence to take the homicide case to court. 
On August 16th, McDonald took Robin to a hotel where she was under constant surveillance to ensure that she was clean for the 18th. On the 18th, McDonald brought her to the hearing, and based on her report, the case was approved for trial. In exchange for her testimony, Robin was cleared of two charges of prostitution. She was provided an apartment by social services. She was given social assistance checks, and she was given the option for counseling and job training. McDonald hoped that she could turn herself around before the trial. Glenn's bail hearing was set for September 10th. That morning, a group of kids were walking through the woods behind their school in Dartmouth when they came upon an unconscious woman, severely beaten and bloody, and barely clinging to life. These boys called the police. Robin had been brutally beaten, and on September 18th, she was pronounced dead. This meant that she could no longer testify in the trial against Glenn. But McDonald had collected that KGB statement a while ago, and that meant that her testimony would still stand up in court. And thanks to that testimony, Glenn was found guilty of second-degree murder without the eligibility of parole for 17 years. So now it finally looked like the murder of Brenda Way was closed. But when this case was looked further into, there were a few things that really looked wrong. In 2019, 21 years after these trials began, Glenn was fully exonerated on his murder charges. During Glenn's trials, investigator Dave Moore was following an entirely different person, and he was intricately tracing the movements and activities of the serial killer, Michael Wayne McRae. Back in 2004, Glenn's defense attorney requested documents on this killer, but immediately after, the documents were destroyed and the attorney's appeal was denied. But recently, the previously destroyed documents were released, and based on the killer's trail, Dave Moore had named him the most likely killer of Brenda Way. Based on this, the defense was granted an appeal, and with zero evidence provided by the prosecutors, Glenn was released. Despite this shift in the case, we still have no definitive answer on who killed Brenda Way. With all of the evidence presented against Glenn, is it still possible that he did it? There's no definitive evidence to support it, but there's so many accounts, could they all possibly be wrong? I guess that's up for you to decide. But in order to make an informed decision, I'll have to tell you about Canada's self-proclaimed most prolific serial killer, Michael Wayne McRae. And that's next week on Shades of Crime. Until then, keep it shady. Thank you for listening to Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shalee Musso. If you like what you hear, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to get the word out about this podcast, and it'll definitely help boost the listeners for it. Shades of Crime can be found basically anywhere where you find your podcasts. We can also be found on Instagram at Shades of Crime Podcast, and you can find our website at www.shadesofcrime.ca. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, or cases you'd like me to cover, email me at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.